You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. This is Ariel Adams, and this is the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Guido Terreni. He is the new CEO of Parmigiani Swiss Watches. And when I first met Guido, he was a, the head of watches at Bulgari. And now he is in, a, in a, a different position, a higher position, a new brand. Guido, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great. So, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do with the show is to bring a little bit of a backstory on the people who run the brands. It's like, who are these men and women responsible for making luxury watches in 2021? I think that a lot of people need to understand that you don't just enter and someone gives you a book and it's like, hey, Guido, this is what a Parmigiani watch should be. This is the type of stuff you should aim for. Uh, if you keep doing that, you'll, you'll sell watches. Uh, it's, it's not that. Tell us, what, what is exactly is it like when you first start a position as a watch brand CEO? Well, it's a, it's a great moment and it's very precious and you have to be extremely humble and uh, try to take away the background that you know and look at the business that you've been looking at for 20 years with different eyes. And uh, this is exactly what is happening because I know Parmigiani Fleurier as a brand from the outside uh, for, many, for many years, but when you step in, you have uh, a perspective that is extremely deeper and uh, extremely fascinating. The level of culture in watchmaking that you have in this brand is at the highest possible. And this comes from Michel Parmigiani himself. And so I'm, I'm really at the source of, uh, of the knowledge. And, uh, and it's something that, that I've never experienced before because uh, the culture where I come from is an outsider in, in watchmaking. Although with the, in Bulgari, uh, we managed to do extraordinary things, but here it's really deep rooted in what the UNESCO uh, just uh, named as patrimony of the humanity. You now this, uh, this uh, traditional art of mechanical arts uh, that is uh, at a level that is at the top of the industry. This comes from Michel himself, because he is a restorator. So when you are a restorator, you are mastering the, the art of mechanics at a level. Let, let, me, of, let me clarify that for people, because again, you know, what you're saying is, is just a, such an important thing. Michel Parmigiani began as a restorer. So he is among the sort of elite group of mechanical minds that not only understands how to build things, but knows how to... to it restore old things, reverse engineers things. These these types of men and women that end up being the restorers. It sounds a little, you know, not so actually, you know, uh, glamorous, but it's actually the most glamorous position in, in watchmaking. Guido, please continue. Exactly. So what you're saying is uh, is is very important because uh, competence and the the level of understanding of what is possible to be done in mechanics uh, is is the essence of this brand and uh, michel through restoration is not only repairing ancient pieces this is not 
this is simplistic to say this, he becomes the creators of the past when he's working because he has to disappear. When you're restoring a piece, you are walking the thin line of doing a mistake that will take out the, the authenticity of what you're restoring. So you have to become each creator of the past. And he did this through 500 years of, of watchmaking. And uh, you, he told me something that that is incredibly uh, interesting because you are under an emotional pressure, which is extraordinary. Uh, because when, when you do a mistake, your mark is there. And in 100, 200 years, somebody else would like to restore the piece that he worked. He will not be restoring uh, the original, he will be restoring something that you left, which came uh, 100 or 200 years later from the from the, the original. So when you lose a screw, you look for a screw, and a screw uh, until the 18th century, the end of the 19th century, they were not standardized. So each watchmaker did his own. And so when when you lose one, you have to replicate the original screw that fits in. The, the the hole that you have to tighten up uh, the part that you, you have, have to, to be tighten a, you up. have to be a fabricator you have to know how to make something exactly from but you have Super to make hard. it in the in the art of making of that time because you cannot use the technique of today so the master of mechanical art here is extraordinary and it's uh, it gives you a level of understanding of what uh, can be affecting the life of a product and uh, for instance, he explained to me why uh, in the base caliber, he wanted a double barrel. And uh, after 20 years of industry, probably I was not enough competent to understand the true reason for which you have a double barrel, which is not to store more energy. The double barrel gives you a constant torque throughout uh, the, the, the releasing of the energy. And this is the, the primary function of this is to give uh, more long-lasting life to your movement because uh, the frictions in the other parts of the movement are regular. And this comes from restoration. How can I give, how can I perpetuate more the life of my movement? Yeah, he looks at a lot of old movements. He's like, this thing that they did a bunch of times was wrong. Exactly. This other thing worked out a lot better. I should probably exactly. do the better thing. It's, exactly. uh, it's an amazing grasp of so many different types of skill sets and, and mastery. Now, Mr. Parmigiani, um, I think is such an amazing story in the space. And I'm, I'm gonna, you, you tell me if I'm wrong here, right? Because I'm just sort of going back on my memory of the many meetings I've had with the brand. So here's an individual who is a restorer, and he has some uh, pretty important clients. And one set of clients essentially ends up wanting to build a brand around him. And then he gets this opportunity not only have his name on the brand but to make like very small production crazy high-end things that are vividly complicated as well as developing you know industrial techniques sort of the way he wants to do for more um for more volume production but it always focus on on finishing and doing things his way i mean he sort of got like he got very fortunate i mean am i right wrong well yes he had the the chance of um well, you have to imagine this guy is, is somebody that at the age of 25, in the middle of the quartz crisis, he said, uh, 
how can we perpetuate the the mechanical art of watchmaking? And he started restoring pieces. So he's already somebody who is going not with the flow. No, he's he understands the patrimony of uh, what is was going to be lost. Everybody was doing quartz movement from Patek to all the the the, the great brands, and uh, he said, "No, I don't want to go down that road." Uh, so it's not a, a guy who has a commercial uh, spirit. He has a, a really uh, a pure uh, mind and a pure soul to to. To, to restore and to, to maintain the tradition of watchmaking. But this is not something that is looking at the past because in, the, in reality, it's the contrary. He's giving a second life to an object of the past. And he started uh, restoring very ancient pieces and he started to, be, to become famous. Uh, he restored a, a, a great part of the Patek Museum, Philip, the Museum of Patek Philippe with the ancient pieces. And then the, the foundation, the family Sando, had a private collection very important of ancient pieces and they asked him to restore their collection and they got to know them very well. And then they, they suggested, why don't we, we do your own brand? And, uh, and so they, they, that's how Parmigiani started as a brand uh, 25 years ago, obviously with the idea of doing exceptional things. And uh, in, in the history of this brand, you, you see the respect of, uh, of the finishings. You see the level of quality, which is extraordinarily high. Uh, and this is something that is extremely important because you ask me, what am I doing to step in into my new role? Uh, I'm understanding, I'm studying, I'm, I'm trying to, to grasp the soul of this brand, uh, which is extremely noble very understated in the style because it's not a brand in your face. It's a brand for people who are well-educated in watchmaking. Usually they, they are collectors and they are collectors of the finest uh, pieces. So uh, this is the soul of the person that we're looking for and uh, the soul of the brand that I want to 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 keep alive and to to do it in a way that is a little bit more contemporary, a little bit more fresh. So go back to the origin with a fresher eye. That's a, that's good to know. And we'll, we'll get back to that because I think people are very curious about, you know, what some of your ideas are with evolving the brand. But one of the things that is very different between this and, and your previous position was that Parmigiani is truly sort of independently run. And it begs the question, I think a lot of people are, are interested in this, most watch brands today have the capability of making any number of products. You know, they have the technology to make brand new designs or any number of complications. But something about the management style tends to have a direct relationship on what the products are. How does the management style at Parmigiani differ from Bulgari and how does that have an impact on the, on the watches which are, are researched and, and, and eventually produced? I think that what is important here is the human value. Uh, and this is uh, extremely important in a semi-artisanal reality like Parmigiani. And uh, it's, uh, it's a way of, uh, when, I, when I stepped in, I asked uh, what is so important about the brand to everybody. I spent two days uh, meeting the 80 people that constitute this uh, beautiful brand. Uh, spending 10, 15 minutes each asking where they came from, what they did before, uh, what is their role now, what they are doing, what is for them Parmigiani, what, how they can contribute to, to making Parmigiani more desirable. 
and you start seeing people who who start to open up you know? because you know how the the Swiss culture is in in it's quite formal now when you, when you are the CEO and you step in there's a even a formal tone in in speaking to to each other now as oh, yeah. English doesn't have that uh, form of politeness because you you address uh, in a polite way everyone uh, at the same level so in in Italian or in in French you have courtesy uh, forms of of uh, of language and uh, and I wanted to break these barriers because they create distance now so it, it's I want to really make people Uh, be able to express what they feel about the brand, what they like about the brand, and then you start throwing ideas, no, and saying, "Well, what about if we did this? Or what about if we did that? And what about uh, how can we do?" Uh, and then it's not a, a just uh, a stimulus that then you have some executors. You have people who grasp immediately your intuition, and they they. They rebound on it. They they give you a, a, another idea to make it even better than what you thought, and this was uh, incredibly rewarding for me as an experience because you see that it's a it's a it's a contribution that starts from the technical side, uh, and uh, and then we, we with my contribution also with my sensitivity I can. Give a direction to this and and make it more clear from an aesthetic point of view because the code the aesthetic codes of the brands the brand are present, but they are not very clear uh, across the assortment. So we have to make choices. We have to we have to put upfront certain things, and I'm sure that there is a huge potential behind this brand because it's very rich of content, and uh, and we need to to make this content un understandable in a better way. You know, I'll tell you this because you and I have had this interesting conversation where we try to philosophize, you know, who is the Parmigiani customer? What do they like? And I've been thinking about this since we first talked about it because this is our second conversation since you started at the brand. And I went back to the memories I had of being at Parmigiani events. And we've done events with the brand and we've been invited to events. And one of the things I always remember is that the other people hanging out there, whether they're just fans, or they're collectors, or they're VIPs of the brand, or whatever it is, we're all very good people and we could hang out all the time. I remember one time there was an event in, in Pebble Beach around the auto show with, of course, the, the, the Bugatti relationship that is very famous. And then we did this event, which is a dinner at a private auto club in Miami, Florida. And both of these instances, there were others, but both these instances, I specifically remember meeting people who I'd never met before, And they were interesting. And, and the people that like the watches, yes, maybe it's hard to sort of define the cohesive visuals, but there is that humanistic element that I think attracts people and very engaging people, very warm people um, of means and of taste and of culture, but warm people nonetheless tend to be attracted to it. And so some, something about the chemistry is correct. You know what I mean? Yes, I, I, I see what you're saying and I totally understand. Uh, and I and I share what you think. I think uh, people who are into Parmigiani are probably not living life in an aggressive, competitive way as it can be in other expression of luxury, because they are more into the the purpose of uh, why something is like this. And uh, and I think this is a noble thing because uh, you're not really swallowing the marketing activities of a brand but you're really going deeply back to the to the core of uh, 
of why luxury is so beautiful, which is the craft. And, uh, and that's really interesting because it allows you to be deeper. It allows you to be authentic. It allows you, it, 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 you can't have short, you cannot have shortcuts with such a client because it's a client who doesn't want uh, compromises and he wants the excellence. So the content that you see in a, in a, in a Parmigiani wash is very high. And we also see in customers this dichotomy between different types of wealth. And you have comfortable and uncomfortable wealth. And the uncomfortable wealth is probably most of the wealth out there. And that is people that believe that if they don't fight very hard, they will lose it. And they're probably right. And then there's the comfortable wealth that have, it's not just that they have so much, but they've had it for several generations, or they just have such a good thing going that they don't feel like they're going to lose it. You know, they feel that they can blow several hundred thousand dollars or more over a 10-year period on watches and still be okay. And it's these individuals who have the highest level of confidence the, and, and also comfort that feel comfortable making these choices out of, out of decisions like personal emotion, appreciation of craftsmanship. Too often these days, you have this desire to look cool, um, to want something that you can easily resell. And it's funny, and I want your opinion on this. It's such a foreign concept in luxury to have the consumer be um, so almost hyper-focused fo on resale value. That's something which is happening right now in the watch industry, and I'd say it's sort of a temporary fabric. Isn't that sort of weird? Well, uh, again, when you go back to the intimate pleasure of accompanying yourself with such a craft, first of all, it's a personal one. Then if the watch uh, keeps the value, obviously it's a benefit and, and you, can, you can profit if you want to change it and you want to trade it for something else. That's what the collectors do. But uh, first of all, I think it's really an intimate pleasure of, uh, of your own emotion. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's, to me, remains my goal. How can I generate this emotion? How can I perpetuate it? How can I renovate it uh, and, and do something that that is for this kind of educated uh, clientele. Um, I'm trying to think about some of the interesting sort of design cues regarding Parmigiani watches. I think one of the first things that I was told about the brand years ago when I was first introduced to it was sort of this whole thing with the Fibonacci curve and mm -hmm. the teardrop lugs and stuff like that. Help explain to people the role of the Fibonacci curve, this sort of organic spiral design and what that has to do with sort of the overall aesthetic and, and of the brand? Well, this is uh, Michel himself. He's very into observing, observing nature, observing the proportions of what is, uh, of what is uh, naturally in life uh, and in, in, the, in the world. And uh, this is not only his observation. You have Leonardo da Vinci who also uh, looked into this with the numero aulico, I don't know how to say it in English, the, the golden ratio, that's, right. uh, that's golden uh, ratio. The, the, in English, uh, where there is a clear proportion in, in life, uh, in, in objects, and the most beautiful objects tend to respect this uh, golden ratio. And this is true in, in ancient uh, creativities and classic forms in the Greeks and the Romans. So it's something that is in our way of looking at things. And we as humans, we don't know about this ratio. We look at things and find them nice. And then we, we, you find out that if you study uh, them precisely and you, you look at their proportions, you have this, this golden ratio. So um, Michel has always been trying to replicate on, on the object that he has created these, these ratios between the elements that compose the, 
the the parts of his watches, and the Fibonacci is 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 a curve that uh, that uh, that he that he designed, and the, his logs originally respect uh, this uh, this curve that is a mathematical curve. At the end, it seems abstract. It seems uh, it seems. Uh, how do you say, uh, not, uh, not emotional because it's rational, but uh, he's a developer, he's a mechanical person, so his, his pleasure is also to find the rules in, in the object that we observe, and, and that's, that's his part of uh, the story. I mean, the thing is, you could see you know, a bunch of Parmigiani watches for your entire career as a collector and never hear anything about the Fibonacci curve and be totally fine and just be like, these are nice watches, or you could learn this and then be like, oh, okay, that is that is kind of cool. And that's sort of what's great about the great brands is there are these, you know, almost like Easter eggs, these little stories you learn. And you're like, oh, I had no idea. And and that's fun. What is what is the watch development relationship gonna be like between you and Mr. Parmigiani? How is that gonna work? Are you gonna have an idea and then he does it? Does he go to you and say, Hey, can we build this? Like, just explain to me how that's gonna work. Okay. Um, last week, I well, we we meet quite regularly because, uh, and it's not a, an appointment that we he passes by, and uh, he lives next door. So it's uh, he he's uh, he's fond of of, uh, of of what's happening, and uh, and when I arrived, uh, I I presented myself uh, as I do with everybody very openly, and and we immediately got along. Uh, at the first uh, at the first encounter and uh, and then uh, also he speaks Italian because his father is from Milano I'm from Milano so we started speaking uh, like two people that meet and then from there you start asking him what moves him no and and you start understanding his values so my way of, of getting to know him was deep first as a person and then and then what he wanted to do with uh, with his brand and then so the things Move. You cannot ask him direct questions. It doesn't work. His mind doesn't work like that. He, he, you have to have a conversation with him. And then when you talk with him, things like uh, come out. Uh, for him, it's normal. But then uh, you have to grasp them and you have to say, oh, this is a new way of for me to understand something. And then uh, he brought me in the archives. Now, don't you don't have to imagine uh, an archive which is digitalized and you see it through a screen. No, we went up under the roof of the villa here in front at 10 degrees, it was freezing. <laughs> we started looking at uh, the, the well, everything that he did in these 45 years because it was even before the, the brand existed in the restorations and in the, the artworks that he did. And we, we stayed there, only him can go around and uh, in this archive and find things. So I asked him really to spend uh, some time and, and organize the information in order to, to help me uh, go by chapter because I can't look at an archive in, in 45 years at a whole. I, I need to, he needs to take me through. So we're doing this. Uh, but we've, we spent a full day uh, looking at, uh, looking at uh, all his projects and there could be uh, incredible things done one of a kind uh, there was a sultan who wanted to 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 spray perfume on him uh, through a mechanical pistol that that uh, had a watch uh, in it and that it also uh, sprayed the perfume on him as a 2.5 million dollar object no so the things like this things that have 
is not only watchmaking, it's really the art of mechanics. There's a beautiful, you probably saw it, uh, uh, table clock, it's called Hippologia. And it's uh, in silver, it weights 55 kilos. You have this beautiful horse, uh, the, the female horse, and then you have the little uh, horse in front of her. And the female horse is, is really doing a couple of turns in an extremely elegant way and uh, with, with the gestures that are perfect. And then the little one is a little bit clumsy because it's starting to, to understand how to, to walk. This is all done mechanically in silver and it's, it's I've incredible. seen that thing. Yeah, it's incredible. It's incredible. So uh, it's really a, a quest for bringing the emotions at the highest level. And, uh, and when you are also on a, on a, on a brand level with, with assortment uh, that is more on a daily use, there is all, always a, a quest for doing things that are not obvious. I think that the main thing that the client of Parmigiani is looking for is to be, I don't know, anti-mainstream. Oh, wait, you got to go back and say more about the things that he did. You're talking about this 45 years. You mentioned a, a mechanical clock pistol that shoots perfume. That that's, <laughs> you got to mention a few more of, of his special things. Come on. I mean, don't ruin all the surprises, but, you know, let's hear it. <laughs> no, but there are plenty of, of uh, well, there's another table clock uh, uh, with, uh, that replicates a flower, uh, which is uh, made uh, out of petals, um, but the craft of these petals, they're almost moving. Uh, then I have to study myself more because I don't know everything yet. So it's... it's uh, who's, be- who's building this stuff? Is he doing it himself? Does he have like a little team? Like these things take like, you know, some of these take lifetimes to put together. Well, of course, in the region, you have specialists that are contributing, no? So it's yeah. not something that you you can do in-house everything. But the thing is, the idea, the thing is, I have a, a, a I want to do a one-of-a-kind thing. Usually, it starts with a, with a customer with a, which has a which has a wish, and then uh, you start working on it, and then you 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 come up with something that pleases him. Uh, the pistol was a, a clear, a clear brief, if you want, not a brief, a desire, where somebody said, "I want something extraordinarily special to to put my perfume on every day." Uh, and you know, Middle Eastern with perfumes are very—it's a deep culture and olfactive culture in Middle East, uh, and so it's, it was something exclusive that was done. There's an, there's another pistol who who shoots a bird. Oh, the little, a, sing, the little singing bird? Yeah, the singing bird, all mechanical with all his feathers and that are all mechanical, done uh, with micro. Uh, it's really something that is, you can't even imagine to start working on something like this. It's like climbing 10 Everest, not one. <laughs> now, okay, so let me let me back up here from a business perspective. I think one some of the, something people need to realize is the watch industry got started by making really remarkable things for the ultra wealthy back in the day the only people that could afford a a pocket watch a, t- a clock anything like that was royalty or a super wealthy merchant an aristocrat someone like that so the entire business was just like amazing one of a kind things it wasn't until later that there was more what you would call mass production and the cost went down um, in, in society now today uh, luxury watches have you know, what you would call mass-produced uh, mainstream luxury watches, but also a lot of one-of-a-kind, amazing, crazy things. Many of them never see the light of, you know, a day outside of the customer because it's a custom creation. How important 
to a brand like Parmigiani are those special VIP customers that order those wild things? Like, is that like sort of a nice added, you know, added icing on the cake each year? Or is that a significant part of the business? No, today is not, not anymore a significant part because it's been a little bit uh, uh, left uh, behind in, in, in the years of the management before me. But it's for sure something that uh, has the potential to be, to be done again. But I'm, I'm, I'm more looking into a way to express this uh, know-how on something that can be also worn. Uh, and, uh, and this can be done. Uh, and for sure, we're going to bring the brand uh, able to, to, to do these things in the, in the future too. But that's, uh, that's, uh, they can be important because these pieces can be million, uh, very high in the ticket. So if you do one a year, it can be also uh, nice uh, and it can be also contributing in the, in the turnover. But uh, it's uh, the reason is really to to keep this talent and to 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 keep this mind that everything is possible. That's what I like in these objects because uh, you are not there looking at the cent to to make a, a margin that uh, makes sense. You, there, the cost is not a problem. The cost is is referred to the content that you put in, to the, the audacity that you have in your imagination, uh, and then uh, and then the the more high is the emotion, uh, the, the more the desire. That's the only thing you can do. And this kind of philosophy, I like it also on the more regular collection because, in my opinion, um, as you said, luxury has become so big and it's become uh, an, uh, bought by people who are less educated about it. And uh, so that's why I believe in this historical moment, niche brands, if they are able to, to nail their reason to exist, they can have a very bright future ahead of them because there is a crowd who is starting to, to look for things that are less obvious to to put distance from the brands that have that have a wide distribution or that are just playing with exclusivity as as a tool to create desirability and here the the desirability must be created by the craft that you you put in the in the collection i i, I can't wait to start seeing some of the first products that you're responsible for because i think that a lot of your words right now are going to make you know, a lot more sense to people because you approach things in a very philosophical way that results in a good product. And that definitely has been seen in the good work you did uh, at, at Bulgari. What are some of the most common questions the Parmigiani team asks you about your time at Bulgari? Uh, the, the, I tend not to do comparisons because uh, I, it's not nice for, for somebody who who works for one brand uh, to have somebody come in. In Bulgari, we used to do this. It's, uh, I... I it's like uh, when you break up with your girlfriend. Now you don't speak to your new girlfriend about your old girlfriend. No. So I tend to respect that. And uh, But I, I have a deep knowledge and a deep background in myself. Uh, and I use these stimulus uh, to, 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 to push the, the, the technical teams on, or the design teams to an extra mile. So I tend to not to, to bring in my baggage in terms of brand, 
I bring my baggage in terms of competence and I try to sum it to what I find here, which is extremely high. So uh, that's that's very important to me to respect the, the feelings and the, the personality of this brand. Fair, fair enough. Because the clients the clients are so different. I mean, there's, there's no comparison in terms of clientele between a Bulgari client and a, and a Parmigiani client. Yeah, it's, it's totally different. But I mean, let's be honest, you know, the people at Parmigiani saw something in you based upon something you did at Bulgari and the listeners want, you know, to know. I mean, yes, there are going to be some people that know the evolution of the Octo and the Octo Finissimo and, and some of these amazing products that came out while you were there. Um, but other people are going to want to know, like, OK, you've you've mentioned a lot about this this interesting brand that is Parmigiani, this interesting man who is Michel Parmigiani. Now, what is it about your personality, what you do different that allows you to suitably fit the role you're in right now and gives some people some, you know, uh, food for the imagination of what might come next? Well, I think uh, I had this experience also previously. No, uh, you know that we integrated, uh, well, when I was in Bulgaria, I had the role to integrate Daniel Roth and Gerald Genta into Bulgaria. No? So I had the, the chance to see what Gerald Genta brand was. Uh, you know that Gerald Genta is a, the legend of creativity, if you want it, watchmaking. And uh, then when you see the, the, the museum pieces of, of his, his brand, it was plenty, 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 plenty of things. So and much, the, the, so much. And the, brand, and the brand didn't take off under him. No, no not at all. Uh, it, it he was, he was the worst marketer. That was a hilarious thing. He was a great designer, worst marketer. But that's, that's the role of a creative, because uh, when you're a creator and you, you have the freedom to do your own brand, you do everything. You you have an idea, you do it. When you are uh, a brand uh, and you and you are trying to build icons, you have to have a discipline. You have to have a a, a sort a direction, a clear a clear idea. No, in in mind. Now some brands received. Uh, uh, you think of Adamer Piguet with the Royal Oak. Uh, it's a brand that is. Basically, a, a one product, no, and it, and, it, and it's something that was designed by Genta and it brought brought from the outside, and they managed to to keep it and to make something so desirable. And after forty years, it's one of the most coveted uh, timepieces in the world. And the same thing for Patek with the Nautilus, same story, same creator. Uh, here in Parmigiani, is a bit the same. Now, when you have a creator of movements, of uh, you tend to go in many directions. So my role here is to. To, to understand which are the things that can be put up front in a in a more understandable way, and to make it clear to a to a Parmigiani customer what is a Parmigiani watch from a, not only from a technical side, which is very clear because here we are in the tradition of watchmaking at the highest level, so uh, it is it's already given. No, it's not like in Bulgari that I had to create uh, an assortment of movements exceptional that didn't exist here you have already a lot of movements that are fantastic so i have to i have to capitalize on this uh, on the other side we are looking at those aesthetic codes in the brand that are present but are discrete and they are few four or five now that uh, that are not put up front yet and that can contribute to clarifying the style of the brand and I would like to inject a little bit of freshness into, into the brand. Support for our podcast is brought to you by Just Live, a trusted source for high-quality wellness CBD products created by athletes just for you. 
CBD helps athletes or anyone active to feel better while increasing stamina. CBD is popular because it can simultaneously increase energy while also decreasing stress. It's a natural painkiller, and it also has been known to decrease inflammation. CBD isn't just about feeling good, it's about extending personal performance. Just Live recently came out with their new CBD gummy line. They have six different flavors and functions, including sleep, energy, focus, immunity, calm, and vitamin C. Plus, they're vegan and low in sugar. Just Live was founded by professional athletes Clay Thompson, Alex Morgan, Travis Pastrana, and Paul Rodriguez because they wanted to create a CBD product they could trust and could stand behind. If you need support with sleep, focus, energy, stress, or immune health, I highly recommend giving these a try. Right now, if you buy one of these new gummy products, you get one free. Instead of choosing just one, visit justlive.com and use coupon code SUPPORT to buy one, get one free. Again, buy one CBD gummies pack and get one free at justlive.com by using code SUPPORT. I, I got to give some feedback because I am one of those people that sees the products and feels something. And I, I want this part to be clear. A lot of times I'll see a Parmigiani watch and I'll think to myself, Michelle Parmigiani had some interesting intention here. Like he built this inspired by something. He wanted to accomplish something with this. But that thing isn't being communicated to me. Now, like, mind you, I because I don't speak French, I'm never going to get the full experience from him. But I think that if consumers knew a little bit more about what he had in his mind, if there was a way of translating that a little bit better into the visual experience of seeing the watches, that would help because one of the biggest challenges in a mind like his and others like him in the space, you know, Gerald Genta included, is how do you take what their ideas in their mind and just give a, a, a mirror image of that to the consumer? So they're like, oh, yeah, that's what you were going for. And they can appreciate it instantly. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, I think I think uh, you have to also live the time that you are living. No? Uh, and this is very important. Um, today, there is a clear trend. There is a clear desire for certain types of objects. Uh, and uh, and uh, this has to be interpreted by a brand in their own way. So you shouldn't do copying what is on the market. This is never going to work. If you come second copying things, you will just be a second or third or you will just disappear. So the important thing is to understand how can I please a person that can be also a younger person because the classic style of the brand today is, is a little bit uh, with a clientele with this, which is can be rejuvenated if you want in the interest. So what would a 30 to 5 years old guy who likes watchmaking, who is who is willing to put uh, distance from from the others in it with taste, no? I think the, the the biggest part of the, the sales today in watchmaking are done between 30, 35, and, and 50. That that's the core target of 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 of, uh, of who is moving the sales, and and this is very important to understand. So, clarify to the client, the the, the aficionados watchmaking that is willing to be less show off but extremely refined in what he's doing, and it is willing to be set himself aside from from the mainstream because this is what people are looking for if they are interested let's so say that one say that that price range again that for you is the sweet spot for the brand uh, the sweet spot in terms of price range to me uh, is uh, can be 15 20 thousand uh, up to 50 thousand that, okay. that's that's the core of, of the brand. 
But of course, you can express yourself even higher. Because, oh, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. We know that. that, that, that there's no limit to, to that. But for sure, a brand has to be able to, to, to be relevant and to say something in that kind of uh, price bracket that I was saying before. And it's also a question of age, no? because today there's a lot of people who are wealthy that are looking for uh, objects that, that they are referring to uh, personally, no? in terms of taste, in terms of style, in terms of... And today, there's not many choices that are really truly relevant, in, in my opinion. Uh, you know very well that I, what I think about uh, watchmaking, uh, it's, a, it's an industry that, that uh, innovates a lot. You have a lot of timepieces that come out every year, but very, very few true innovations uh, one or two per decade are 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 the hallmarks of the of the of the industry. No, so this is a bit of a contradiction, and there's also this habit that I I don't share of replicating the past. No, that is uh, something that uh, the industry has been doing quite a lot in in the recent years, and this has created uh, the vintage fever. No, because if if you're replicating a watch of the past, you're probably more interested in going to an auction and buy the, the true one. Yeah. Uh, so I, I tend to refuse this as a, as a person uh, because that means the past was better. And, and I think that luxury has always been able to be a sort of frontier no? in, in aesthetics and in technique, in craft. And all the pieces that today are vintage pieces uh, coveted by the by by aficionados in their own way, they were very innovative when they came out. So that is uh, what we're trying to, to work on. Okay, let's talk about some of your upbringing. You were sharing a story with me a couple of years ago about growing up and there being this idea that, you know, when gentlemen got of a certain age or a certain level of success, they would get a nice watch. You would, you would grow up uh, with nice watches. You, you know, you grew up with the names of certain nice watches around you. You were privileged to come from that culture. And we know that today that doesn't happen um, in the same way. We actually have people learning about luxury watches through pop culture now, interestingly enough, through certain types of music and, of course, through celebrity news and stuff like that. What do you think are some of the, the major differences in, in tastes that are going to happen when you know, today's 20-something-year-olds end up being in their mid-30s, mid-40s and, and start to get into the zones where they could be Parmigiani customers? I think it depends on the people. You cannot just take a bracket of age, no? Because uh, in, in an age bracket, you have people who are forward thinkers, who are conservative, who are uh, old money, new money. There are plenty of nuances, no? And the beauty of being a niche is that you can choose. No? You you are related to a to a to a crowd that which is smaller, no? and you can be more precise. So, in my opinion, it depends on who you think will relate more, because for sure, Parmigiani cannot be futuristic. No, I don't see that. Uh, but it cannot be also old-fashioned, because okay, that so, is not. So, what does sexy. that mean? You know, I mean, there there it is a thing. Obviously, we see it all the time. But help explain to people out there, what is the process of designing something, like you said, isn't futuristic, but hasn't been done before? How do you make a new classic? Well, first of all, a new classic is extremely difficult to make because you should not over-design it. Because everything that is over-designed lasts very little time. Uh, so the simplicity in design is the most complex thing to achieve. 
And then you have to have some iconic elements that are recognizable, but they're not invasive. Uh, so it's a it's a really a chemistry of elements, ingredients that uh, have to have a great balance, and uh, need to need to be done with a lot of taste. So the the it's not a there's not a, a rule. It's a, it's that's the beauty of it. It's a qualitative job. It's a job of sensitivity. It's a job of understanding which brand I am, and what kind of client I want to serve, and then uh, trying to find this uh, this 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 uh, this object that you're looking for. It also takes an enormous amount of time, right? Because it's, it uses the iterative approach, where you basically you make one example. You're like, what's wrong with it? It's not perfect yet fix it a little bit, mm, still a few more changes. And you do that again and again and again and again. And I think the joke, especially among sort of the artists in your part of the world, is if it were up to them, their work would never be done. Yes, it's true. But you would be surprised to know that the best ideas, the best designs usually came out quickly. Because if you are uh, looking for a design and you're working on it and you don't find it, you don't nail the... That means that the design is not strong enough, and you you're working like on a patient who is in reanimation. Uh, better to, to to do something new if you're stuck in that creativity. Maybe, but some of them it's you know conceived in a moment, but really raised over a lifetime. No, no, the continuity of that is different because that makes the time makes it iconic because you have to digest it you have to insist you have to persevere you have to you have to believe yourself in it and if a year goes down uh, because you cannot have a growth as a straight line it doesn't matter you believe in it and that's very difficult to do in groups because uh, when you have a, a year that is shy uh, people start saying ah we're not growing enough what do we do we start working on a product again because it's always a product that uh, is uh, the good or the bad no uh, and this is a culture that you don't have in a fam in a semi uh, artisanal brand because right. uh, you are there to build something for the sake of of what you're building and it's a totally different mentality from a from a, somebody that wants to do something futuristic to somebody that wants to just purely replicate the, the, the past. Yeah. I think people sometimes underestimate the sheer difference of culture between people that make, say, $50,000 watches. You could very easily mistake, oh, you put all these men and women in the same room that make $50,000 watches and they just all get along. When, in fact... They they actually hate each other sometimes for like silly reasons. Like, what are you talking about? Gold is the only luxury metal. Carbon is not luxury. And someone else says, nobody cares about gold. It's all about cool stuff like carbon. And they will kill the, each other over this silly topic. And this happens all the yeah. time. <laughs> it happens all the time. Yeah, it's true. You're, you're totally right. But then you have, you have also the who is a follower and who understands. that, that Those are two different clients. So a follower usually needs to see it, the watch on the wrist of other people who he looks up to, and and uh, it, that that is not the kind of customer Parmigiani looks at because we're we're not there, and 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 Parmigiani is more looking at an elite of of connoisseurs, people who are well educated who don't really care what other people think about what they're having on the wrist because they don't think that they will be recognized because they're wearing a Parmigiani. But don't get me wrong, this is not that they don't care of the social impact of, of wearing a Parmigiani. Because when you find another person who, who recognizes that you have a Parmigiani, ah, there, that's an inclusive discussion that starts at a higher level. 
because you are you are talking to the same level of competence and knowledge, and there you 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 can have a real bond. You see what I'm saying? So it's an exclusive, inclusive community. It's exclusive because you can access only if you have the means of understanding uh, that level of finesse. And once you do recognize what you're wearing, uh, then you are you're really talking uh, in a in a smaller club of competent people. Now, the funny thing is there's a, there's a number of brands that are trying to serve that purpose to the same group of, of, of clients, meaning that there is a lot of those people that have the money to just do whatever they want. And there's, you know, a dozen or so brands like Parmesan. They're all, they're all, they all have different qualities and designs and, and stuff like that, but it's, it's fiercely competitive. And that's what I think people don't quite understand is that even though it's very boutique, even at this level, very, very fiercely competitive, such a broad variety of designs and things like that. People, you know, lay people might not know that in the $50,000 plus range, there would be such a, a thriving ecosystem of experimental designs. But there are so, 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 so many to restrain yourself, as I think Parmigiani has done well, into sort of a cohesive code takes discipline that we don't see everywhere, right? Yeah. But what you're saying is very interesting because... Uh, the Swiss industry was uh, had uh, before the groups arrived in, in the early 2000s, end of end of last uh, century. Uh, Switzerland was uh, a very uh, open industry, and when I say open, I say that you could still today eh, you can't do a watch by yourself 100. percent So uh, brands who were small niche because the luxury business was much smaller than today, uh, they needed to help each other and the the suppliers were shared. And so you took take Max Busser, no, and BNF, he built it through, uh, uh, he built his brand through a a network of of people that helped him, uh, technically speaking. Uh, So the competition between niche brands is, is not harsh. There's a sort of solidarity between niche brands. It's a group that they compete because they have financial uh, impact is is huge, no? So the the, the acquisitions of the group uh, across the centuries has taken out this uh, help and transversal help between the people who are working in the industry. And this transversal help was was historic because in the in the last uh, part of the 19th century there was a, an international fair in, in New York and and, uh, and and Swiss people went to to US and they saw innovation at the time mechanic was the only way to to tell the time there was no course there was nothing so they they were scared because they 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 said if we don't modernize ourselves we, we will be kicked out no so historically people who were in the in in Switzerland they federate it, their their talents together to survive as a as a system and this is typically in the Swiss culture it's a federation of state, of cantons and, and you have this level of my personal interest my commune my 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 state my canton and then you have the federal interest which is the Swiss interest so this philosophy across the 20th century was always present and then it has been changed in the last in this century due to the acquisition of many, many brands and there are very few independents now uh, that, that are surviving these, uh, this, this logic. This is a very good history lesson, absolutely accurate. And I should clarify what I said a little bit is I, I, I want to 
Claire, yes, you, you are 100% true that the industry's independents need each other more than they fight each other. I guess what I meant was that from a design perspective, if you're a consumer and you want to spend $50,000 on one watch, the amount of options you have available to you is remarkably vast. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. And so the watchmakers have this wonderful, gentlemanly-like relationship with one another where they feel, you know what, I'm going to support your watchmaking and you're going to support my watchmaking, even though we're both, we both can't sell to the same person, because we feel that if we support one another, we'll grow passion and then we'll each find a consumer, meaning that they know that, that each other boosts, legitimizes one another. And that, mm-hmm. and, that, and that mutual leg- legitimization, as well as the, the federation of the talents, which is crucial, makes this industry possible. And that in the market out there, you know, there is belief that the market is. It is true. I mean, you're talking about, you know, what, several thousand watches a year sometimes at certain price levels. Like there, there are customers out there. But some of these, you know, even at these high price points, very basic principles of economics t- take, take place. And, and, and again, it takes people like yourself and, and people like me, they analyze it to think about. Most consumers, uh, you, you know, they're, they're mystified by how this stuff even gets made. Yeah, it's true. And, and that's, that's sort of one of the secrets is you have this wonderful workshop behind you and you know that you could impress the hell out of any given client by just saying like, be my guest to the manufacturer and we'll have you polishing metal for half a day. Like that would thrill <laughs> them. Like that's a great, you know, that's a great piece of ammunition to have if you want to make someone happy. Oh, it's true, but this uh, this 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 was one of the reasons for which I accepted this uh, great challenge of coming to Parmigiani because the technical skills that are available when you have this technical knowledge at your fingertips. No, because from uh, the movements, uh, even the the assortments with Atocalpa and all the spirals that are extremely rare to be done in the industry are internalized here. The dials, the cases, uh, you are really working on development in a in a sync with synchronicity no so uh, if you you start a new drawing and 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 you visit uh, the technical guys in in uh, in La Chaux-de-Fonds that are working on cases and dials there in the same room they are they they have an abiage so the the case and dials together they 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 speak in each other they, because they have to mount themselves one into the other with the movement so you're not just uh, developing separately like a star organization or a case and separately the dial and a brace uh, then you, you have to mount everything at the end and you find out uh, what's wrong no here you're doing things in a in a coordinated way like a like an orchestra now that and, and each musician is playing the music at the same time and that is beautiful because uh, you have uh, ideas that come out because you have constraints uh, it's not easy to to develop no so sometimes you have a design who wants something and you can't achieve it technically you'll find a, have to find a way around it and uh, and if you are two instead of one uh, like dialing cases together it's better no and so this this way of developing is extremely rich and it's extremely adding value but you got to admit this is this is so amazing because again I'm so happy you're talking about this most people do not assume that your task involves so much I'll just call it you know mechanics and things like that not that you're solving mechanical problems but you have to oversee um in addition to running a brand and developing you know new designs and sales and things like that like literally the development of products and so you have to become intimately aware of that and that's it's a positive thing, but it's also a really big part of the job, right? Well, that's what fascinates me the most. 
because to me it's uh, it's the craft is there and uh, when you have an issue in in a watch uh, that needs a service nine times out of ten is a bad development so uh, if you are able to anticipate in the development this uh, these issues that might arise because people are, sh are working transversally across the movements and they are thinking about the whole watch not just their specific territory of, of component. Uh, there you have an alchemy which is at a high level. And it's it's a wonderful thing. It's something I need to learn more about myself for sure. And and again, I hope that I'm able to sort of be a little bit more aware of some of the projects you're working on. You're always sort of good about telling me some of the things that, that you were doing. I'm I'm curious now. I'm curious. Pretty soon, hopefully soon, you'll be able to start traveling again. Where are some of the first destinations you feel like you have to go to start sort of getting a, a finger on the pulse of the markets again? Well, I'm going to go to uh, to markets that are challenging uh, in the knowledge. I think the first one that I will visit is Germany. Okay. Because it's a really, really tough client and very competent. And uh, there... I think uh, you have uh, a true understanding of what uh, a, a true connoisseur is about. U.S. also, because U.S. has uh, has also this uh, important uh, field of people who are deeply knowledgeable about luxury. Uh, although it's uh, it's not the big numbers, but U.S. is so big, so it's important too. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, of course, Japan. Uh, again, there is a, a level of style which is understated, which is discrete, which uh, which relates very well. Uh, and uh, and then uh, China for for sure. That's a bit the the priorities that I have that are more linked to the content and to the soul of the brand than to then create the the sales because the sales is a consequence. What do you? What are you looking to learn that will offer you hints on what products to make and things like that? You know, there's always this question about what direction to go, and I and I don't envy you. It's a tough, tough decision. <laughs> what kind of market hints do you look for? I need to talk to to people because uh, what I have in mind is is my personal sensitivity, and and unfortunately, due to COVID, uh, it's been very difficult for me to enter in a new environment. Uh, already, when you speak to people, you are, you have your mask on, so to to remember the faces for me is is not easy. So oh, I can imagine. You yeah. can you can imagine. So I look at the eyes, I look at the physique, uh, I try to remember all the names because uh, I think it's important to to speak to the people with their own names. Uh, but it's difficult to me because they're all masks, no? and then uh, uh, and uh, and this is harsh. And uh, and also speaking to 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 people who are on the floor who are selling directly to people uh, and and speaking also to watch aficionados that have been part of the brand uh, before that own parmigiani that feel their their own their own uh, idea of the brand I, I need to confront myself i need to confront my my sensitivity which i have done internally with, with the people of the brand but that's a little bit self-indulgent uh, because you're speaking to to internally, uh, the real challenge, challenge, the real confrontation starts with with the outside, where people have choices to, to what they want to purchase, what they want to follow, and etc. So I have my own sensitivity based on my 20 years of experience, uh, but this is not enough. 
I have to speak with people, touch touch physically the the client. Uh, have have some quality time together because it's not uh, by asking a question and getting an answer. It's not through a, a video conference that you can grasp the soul of a customer. So it's really that human touch that I'm looking for to understand what moves the emotion uh, and the desire of a Parmigiano. We need to release Guido into the wild so you can see what's going exactly. on. I feel in line in a cage now. <laughs> yes. Let me out. Come on. <laughs> That's exactly right. Okay, so we're gonna we're, we're we're about out of time now. And I thought, you know, I told you what my favorite Parmigiani watch was, but I realized that people might want to hear about what my favorite one is. Because I think it sort of explains a lot of the sort of flavors and nuances of the brand, especially what Michel Parmigiani himself values so much and what he likes to do. So there's this watch called the 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 Oval pantograph and, and oval is, is oval and that's the shape of the case and let's talk about the case first of all because this case it like on paper doesn't work but on the wrist it works amazingly it's 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 very it's like a feminine shaped case but for a man and when i say feminine it's very curvy but it looks great on the wrist and what's great about it is that it are those curves it is those beautiful natural curves in nature that make that that curvy case so aesthetically pleasing and there's no other case out on the market that's quite like it many others have tried to do an oval case um patek philippe with the ellipse tried it It just never really worked out for most male wrists and parmigiani got it and they don't get the credit for it okay so that's the case then the movement and this is where things start to get very interesting is it's a basic move it tells the time it has a power reserve indicator but the time is told via these sort of hinged telescopic hands that extend and contract in length on the dial. Why would they want to do it? Well, because the dial is oval, it's not round. Well, can't you just make it a round dial and not to change the size of the hands? Sure, but an oval dial looks different and is neat. And to really make it a proper watch dial, you want to make sure the hands are the right length at all times. So as the hands move around the dial, they literally change the length still making sure that the hour hand is shorter than the minute hand. And these are done with a blued titanium. So it's this extremely classic looking watch that is modeled after this old pocket watch. That I'm not even sure ever worked really well, but it was also oval and it works really well now. And I wore one for a while and I reviewed it and it's not cheap, but it's like, it's, it's such an incredible story because it encapsulates so much of what I respect about the brand that I just I thought I would try. Any, anything you want to add to that story of the pantograph? Well, that's uh, one of those things that are in the creativity that I told you before. So it's these beautiful creativities that went in many directions, but that then unfortunately didn't really meet the encounter of the of the public now so already the oval shape as you said is extremely difficult to 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 be appealing to to clientele and you, there you are really in the niche of the niche so this watch was uh, was a, a reinterpretation of a of a, an ancient clock that you you said not where the hands are telescopic because in an oval uh, the hands make a circle and uh, the case is an ellipse so uh, at 12 o'clock the hands are more distant to to the north and and at six o'clock they're more distance to 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 the south of the watch while the the axe at nine at three o'clock is shorter not so these hands are telescopic because they move uh, and they become longer at 12 o'clock and shorter at three o'clock and that is uh, a technical element, if you want, uh, that works on the hands and is done mechanically in order to 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 sh follow the shape of the the oval. So it's a technical challenge, but it's a bit 
the object is really technical at the end because the emotion of it uh, can relate to to people or not. That's that's subjective. But it, it's a complication it's, to please the eye. It's literally like, oh, don't worry, the hands are never going to look wrong. We're going to build a complication <laughs> just to please your eye. I mean, that's uh, what we're talking about. Yeah, but that's really. I mean, if you want to build a brand, you really need to to have. Uh, I know it's not your favorite. I know. I, I, no, it's not my favorite. The collectors are going to go nuts. You know, in 15, 20 years, someone's going to discover it, and they're going to realize, course. like, they're gonna, look they're at the Paul, look at the Paul Newman yeah, Daytona. Yeah. It was a commercial flop. It came out at the wrong time. No one understood it. We have so many of those. You you know, at yeah. some point, you're like, oh, they're going to notice that and come come running back. It's just a matter of time. It's like. The watch industry is like planting seeds that could take like decades to germinate and finally get it. You never have it. You have to keep watering it like year after year. You're like, maybe this year it'll blossom. No, of course. But uh, to me, the the most uh, interesting design is the Tonda and uh, the Tonda for sure will be evolved. Today, you have already a fresher execution of it with the Tonda GT which is uh, encountering a lot of uh, desirability on a, also a, a younger public. And, also uh, a nice watch, also a nice watch. And uh, and there is, to me, that is the, a nice uh, a nice thing to, to evolve and to to add even more content on it. And, uh, and I think, uh, I mean, uh, you, you won't see something radically new. No, because it's not uh, uh, it's, it's not an exercise that we need to reinvent the wheel on this brand, but we need to be more focused and we need to be a little bit more contemporary and to build a, a, a collection that can become iconic iconic across uh, time. Guido, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing the next round of Parmigiani watches. Everyone, the brand is Parmigiani. You can see more about it on their website or on a blog to watch. Guido, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Superlative. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much, Ariel, and thank you to all the audience. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?